Discworld, it's Discworld Podcast Analysis, yeah! Hello, and Happy New Year. I hope you've had a good 2022. I can say unreservedly that it is without doubt the absolute worst year of my entire life. But considering the grand scheme of things, I guess I'm doing pretty well. And I hope uh, 2023 will be better for me uh, and you, even if you have had um, a good, a less trying uh, 2022 yourselves. Uh, Given that there is probably going to be a bit of a delay on the Thief of Time episodes. I wanted to record this as a a bit of a bonus and because I thought it might be fun. Yes, I'm recording this from my bathtub. Uh, So the audio is probably going to be, well, definitely going to be bit more echoier, a bit less cleaner, you get a bit of background noise, some sloshing and such. And I'm also recording this on my telephone, so, you know, you won't get that nice, crisp, uh, overly compressed sound with all the mouth noises that you're used to getting from uh, Unseen Academicals, but I've had a long day writing about Margaret Atwood, and it's been super hot, and I'm tired. So I wanted to relax and I thought this might be a fun thing to do uh, to occupy myself while I'm having a soak. And um, yeah, I'm probably not going to do it at any other point. So this is this is what you're getting if you're interested. Um, so yes, this is sort of my year reading wrap up sort of podcast, I guess. Um, I was putting out those... Uh, what you've been reading episodes uh, that Alice and I were doing as a warm-up, uh, as bonuses for a while there. Um, and I did record a few myself. Uh, but I stopped doing those because it's, it's not as useful to uh, as a warm-up uh, when I'm recording by myself. Instead of it just being sort of a quick back and forth with the other person, it, you know, I ended up rambling on um, for a bunch of you know, for like half an hour, 40 minutes, at which point I'm tired and don't want to do the podcast anymore. So stop doing those. Um, So don't think anyone was uh, clamoring for them. I did um, put out the the Narnia ranking one, which is still up on the Patreon and in the uh, Patreon podcast feed. If you want to uh, check that out, that can be uh, accessed at... Uh, patreon.com slash unseen academicals pod or no patreon.com slash unseen academicals i think it is uh there'll be a link in the podcast description either way but yeah this is sort of um following along in the the what you've been reading trajectory this is going to be my wrap-up of the best and worst books i've read this year and that is not new books that came out in 2022, because as I'll discuss later on, I didn't actually read too many of those. Um, so this is just any book from any year that I have read for the first time, so not rereads, 
uh, but for the first time. So otherwise they'd all be Pratchett's. Uh, but yeah, any book I've read for the first time in 2022, I'm going to do two top 10 lists, a bottom 10 and a top 10. The bottom 10 I'm going to put out on the public feed as the, the preview episode so everyone can get that and listen to it. Um, and then if you want to hear about the actually good books that I, that I do actually recommend people go and read if they're interested, um, that can be, again, accessed by going to patreon.com slash unseen academicals and signing up uh, there. Again, but the tier's only six Australian dollars. Um, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to, you know, pay the one off and get all the stuff that's up there. I think we got the um, bonus episode on Sandman... Uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman that we did while we were doing um, Lords and Ladies. And then, yeah, the 98 Countdown. There's a few other odds and sods up there. Um, but yeah, you're welcome to dip in and then cancel at any point if, if that hadn't occurred to you. Um, but of course, your ongoing support uh, is appreciated. So thanks again to everyone who has signed up for that. I don't have the list of all your names um, in front of me because I'm, I'm in the bathtub. Uh, and then I can't touch my phone to look them up because it's recording and I want to keep the sound consistent. Um, I do think I can remember, uh, well, I think I can probably remember all of you, but if I forget someone, then I don't want to do that. So just better off not to, but you know who you are. Uh, thanks again for supporting the podcast. If you want to, or you want to unlock this and the other bonus episodes we've done again that is patreon.com slash unseen academicals and i'll shut up now and we can get into the countdown beginning with the worst books i have read for the first time in 2022 uh, so there are going to be a couple of honorable mentions with both these lists uh, so my first honorable mention uh, for the worst books i've read uh, in 2022 i've written down here the entire narnia series um, but I think that that's being a bit facetious because um, there were a couple of those that I enjoyed and there are uh, even some of the ones I didn't, I sort of did respect some of the things that were, were going on, um, you know, in Prince Caspian and books like that, the silver chair as well. Um, I think the only one that I actively dislike, like I still don't think the series as a whole is very good nor deserving of its prominent position in um, the fantasy canon, which I think is more to do with timing than uh, qu uh, quality. Um, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I have read multiple times before. Uh, this is my third full read of it. I think there were there was an abandoned one in the middle somewhere. Um, or it's my second and there was an abandoned one. Three attempts. But Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is just a horrendous book. Um, it, it's poorly written. I don't think it's that interesting or imaginative. It's all over the place, despite what all the people I discussed in the Hogfather episodes contended. I don't think the Santa Claus inclusion uh, makes sense or is a good idea to be included um, if it does. Uh, just just a terrible, uh, terrible book. Um, so that gets an honorable mention, despite being read before, and because I did read the rest of the series for the first time this year and, and well yes there were some that I enjoyed um I didn't particularly 
like and would not recommend any of them except for the other one that I'd already read, The Magician's Nephew, which I do think is really good. Uh, but again, nothing like any of the other books in that series. Anyway, if you want more of that, go check out the bonus Narnia episode. The other honourable mention for my worst books I read for the first time this year list is another one that I think I've discussed on one of the What You've Been Reading bonus episodes, though I can't remember which ones I actually put out now. Uh, but that is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice from 1813. Pfft, I didn't finish this book. Um, and... You know, I've left it out of the top 10 because I am... People keep telling me that there is something to this book. You know, I read it based on its its reputation. Um, and, you know, I've wanted to go in on Jane Austen for a while and everyone kept telling me Pride and Prejudice is the one. It's the place to start. It's the best one. And I was shocked by how much I... Not only did I not enjoy reading it as a... Um, you know, a guy who likes science fiction and fantasy in the year 2022, but also just how bland and uninteresting and insignificant I thought it was. Um, again, people tell me historically it's significant, but I really do feel like this is one that people think's good because we're told it's good, but there, there has to be a better version of this. Like the, the story about the, the quiet girl who can't believe that the guy... The hot guy likes her and, and she's just worried about her reputation and all of that. Like that can't be interesting to people or relatable to people um, in the 21st century without, you know, being updated into something like Bridget Jones's diary or something. Like I get taking that structure and updating it, but yeah, I don't know whether it was, I mean, and clearly it was for all its historical significance. Like I don't, I don't see the the joy in it. I, I don't understand how someone in this age could read this book and be entertained by it, interested by it from a historical perspective, perhaps. Um, and that's what the people who do recommend this book say that you know there are there is a lot of interesting and significant historical interventions going on in this book. Um, but as far as actual entertainment and enjoyment, like reading this book, sucked my will to live. Um, um, and you know, I'm, I'm still getting sucked into that myself in that I'm, I'm leaving it off this list. But if we're just thinking about like the least amount of fun I had reading a book this year was my attempt at reading Pride and Prejudice. And it has put me off, um, attempting Jane Austen again for like probably another 30 years or so. Um, yeah, I mean, for all as I was going to say, for as bad as the rest of these books are, I did finish them all. But I think there is uh, one other that I did not finish. I mean, it's number 10, so let's talk about it now. Starting off the, the actual list of the worst books I read for the first time this year. We have Philip Pullman's Northern Lights um, from 1995. This is the, the Golden Compass book. Um, yeah, went into this one uh, looking for something sort of light to read um, and also because it just it just keeps coming up in the um, fantasy scholarship that I look at it it really is it's um, Rowling, Gaiman and Pullman they're the authors that you know modern fantasy critics talk about um, and yeah as I've discussed on the, the main pod um, I think multiple times at this point I, I don't understand 
um, what Pullman did to get on that list. Maybe this is a British thing. Like maybe his books are huge there. Um, but Pullman, apart from being made into some shitty movies and a canceled TV series that no one remembers, like decades after they came out off the back of people trying to chase the um, Harry Potter and Narnia sort of um, adaptation thing. Like, I don't, I don't understand the reverence for these books at all. Um, I found them such dry, boring slogs. And I guess the, the critical significance or reverence for these comes from the idea that they are engaging with these metaphysical and religious ideas. Like, it's a rewriting of Paradise Lost, um, you know, which itself is a rewriting of Genesis and things. Um, so there's some kind of meta layer there that's interesting, perhaps. But I found all the, the ideas in it really dull. Um, yeah, just uninteresting. And I, I thought it was written like crap. I really just struggled even... No, m most of these I've listened to as audiobooks. I think there's only a handful that I've um, physically read. And this one, you know, I was put, listening to the audiobook, which is short. And then I put it on there. I speed it up. And it was going to be like a couple of hours to read this whole book that is a missing... Um, link in my, you know, knowledge of one fantasy, and I just couldn't do it. I, I was so bored and so disinterested uh, by this book. So Philip Pullman's The Northern Lights. There might be some um, theoretically interesting stuff going on there, but like Prime Prejudice, just an absolute bore to read. Uh, at number nine, I have a book from 2012 by an Australian author named Kate Kennedy called Like a House on Fire. Uh, this is a collection of realist short stories and is not at all the um, kind of thing I would choose to read normally. Um, and from that description, it, it should be pretty uh, apparent to those with a bit of insight. Um, that I read this to teach to a student who was doing it for high school. Like this is a classic Australian high school text that would be set. Um, and then they're Australian fiction, Australian uh, realist, but I'm going to say domestic drama fiction is, is all the same and it's, it's all terrible. Um, so it was sort of unremarkable that I, I didn't like this. I mean, I think the one I did the year before, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's a collection of short stories called The Rip. Um, whoever wrote that, like, I think that is genuinely among, like, the bottom 10, maybe even bottom five, just books I've ever read of any year. Um, the stories just don't make sense, and it's just a guy complaining about how his girlfriend left him for a cooler dude. Um, but this one... Uh, this one I started and it was like, I thought it was okay. Um, comparatively compared to all these other high school texts I'd, I'd taught. I was like, oh, this one isn't too bad. It's decently enough written. The stories are tight. They seem to, you know, have a bit of subtext, have a bit of a, um, come to a point at the end. Um, but then I read the second story and the third story and they were all the same story. Like this was just... 200 pages of, of like 10 or 15 or however many stories of couples arguing and bickering with each other. And, and you just wanted to scream at them all, like get a divorce. Um, so yeah, well, well, each of these stories individually, 
I don't think are that bad to put them all in together and then expect people to like compare them and, and get something out of them. Um, I think it just really drove home everything that is boring and redundant about this type of fiction. And I really wish they'd stop teaching it to kids in school. I mean, another book I taught to one of my high school students this year was The Dressmaker. Um, again, I can't remember the name of the, the author from the top of my head. Um, and I think I may have discussed this in one of the bonus podcasts that I recorded, but I can't remember if I released or not. But, um, but The Dressmaker, which, you know, got made into a film. So I, I think, you know, there's a bit of awareness about it. Um, and, you know, it's got a bit more going on to it. Like there, there's some gothic, sort of rural gothic imagery and and illusions going on but at the end of the day it's a boring book about a whole bunch of people in in a town fighting over football games and then the ending makes no sense um i mean with with that book there was more going on there um there were some ideas and, and i had some interesting discussions with my student i was able to pull things out and direct uh her towards some more interesting texts that dealt with the same ideas whereas i think you know, the, the stories in Like a House on Fire just begin and end with people who shouldn't be together shouting at each other. And Number eight is another one that I know I've discussed on one of the bonus pods uh, with Alice that I released. And is another, you know, attempt to, to fill a hole in my knowledge of contemporary young adult fantasy fiction. Excuse me, young adult fantasy fiction. Uh, this is Cassandra Clare's City of Glass, the third book in the... Uh, Mortal Instruments series, uh, which, you know, I also read for the, the vampire stuff. Um, and the first books were okay-ish. I didn't think they were very good, but, you know, as far as trashy uh, young adult fantasy goes, they were okay. City of Glass, I think, is just abominable. It just was sloppy, um, felt really rushed and poorly constructed. And the, the main character, like the woman, I can't remember her name, but the, the young girl she's told to stay out of the, the big climactic battle because she's a woman. She's like, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, there's probably something else that, that's going on there that's subverted it or something, but I don't remember. Um, on top of just being bland, ridiculous young adult fiction, mainly the reason why this one is here is because of, yeah, how sloppy um, I thought it was. So let's carry that energy into number seven, um, a novel by Gwyneth Jones called Bold as Love from 2021. Uh, not 2021, sorry, 2001. Um, and in the, the forthcoming uh, Thief of Time episodes, I'm going to carry on about all the awards uh, that it didn't win <laughs> and, and all the books that uh, did win in its place. And this is one of them. This won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in, in 2022. Award for the, the best science fiction novel uh, published in the UK the preceding year. And generally, um, you know, I, I think the Arthur C. Clarke Award, you know, it might just be because it's the, the British perspective. Um, but compared to some of the major American war awards like the Hugo and the Nebula and things, generally, I think the Arthur C. Clarke Award picks more interesting and worthy books. Um, this is not one of them. I, I don't really know Gwyneth Jones, 
Um, this book gets mentioned occasionally in science fiction scholarship, and she seems to be a fairly respected critic as well as an author, so I've seen her name around. But yeah, in one of the articles I was reading mentioned this book, Boulder's Love, is obviously a reference to a, a Jimi Hendrix um, album. And this is the first book in a series where the, the rest of them are all names of um, Jimi Hendrix albums and songs as well. Um, it, it's about, I mean, generally, I, I find it quite irritating uh, when authors write about rock music because um, it always seems very ingenuous and I don't think they do it very well, as I discussed in uh, the soul music episodes. Um but yeah, this one seemed interesting because the premise was there was like a, not post-apocalyptic, uh, dystopian sort of future where there's like a political collapse and a punk band is put into power. Um, like a punk musician is made like the prime minister of, of the UK. Um, and I thought that, that was an interesting premise, right, to put, um, you know, actually, actually put some of these punk rock sentiments into action um, and play them out and also the, the dystopian setting and everything sounded interesting um, and, and also I just I found a copy of it in an op shop which was pretty you know wild um, so I, st I actually started reading this one last year or maybe even the year before I think and got bogged down in it like the, the physical copy and then this year I, it came up again so I got the audio book and I went back in and I got through it but Jesus Christ, this this book was a slog. I think this is some of the worst writing I've come across or tried to read. It's like, it's weird. It's not too flowery or anything. Like, it's not something where you look at it and go, well, they're overdoing it. But it's so full of weirdly constructed sentences and paragraphs where you have to reread them like three or four times to try and work out like what's going on what's the reference what's the context for what's being said like I, yeah when I was physically trying to read it, I was constantly getting caught on these snags and going back to the point where I gave up and then I found I, I was having a smoother experience with the audiobook because it would just keep going and I could pick it up from from context clues what was going on rather than getting stuck on particular points of expression but just really hard to follow. Like the, the story, it's the construction really. The story is all over the place and jumps around and never smoothly transitions from scene to scene. And there's all these ideas that like it just doesn't really seem to know what it wants to be. It's just lashing out in all these different directions. Like there's the violent anarchist revolt and then there's like the corrupt political party and then there's a like pedophilia scandal and then there's an environmentalist hacking plot that's going on in the background. And then there's this apocalyptic computer virus at the end. And all this would be great if it came together, but it really just, I don't know. It felt really cobbled together and, and weirdly constructed. Um, and I did find after I looked it up after I finished that it wasn't just me. Like there are a lot of mixed reviews for this book. Um, and, and a lot of them talk about the the writing, the expression, and, and the plotting in particular just being unclear. So it seems like, yeah, it wasn't just me who was struggling with this book. There seems to be something about it that despite its award-winningness, the a, a popular um, consensus about it is that it is, it is hard to follow, and I would say not worth um, untangling. Uh, yeah, 
it also, like I mentioned, there's a pedophilia scandal, which was one of the more interesting and I think well put together parts of the book in that I, I could follow what was going on with the scandal, but it also just sort of comes out of nowhere where it's like, oh yeah, and then one of the characters was this horrific pedophile and they describe all the horrible things he's done. And it's kind of for no reason. It doesn't really serve the plot that much and it it feels like it's thrown in there pretty um, shamelessly for like shock value. And also one of the characters who it doesn't, she ends up being sidelined, but she sort of starts off being the main character is like this young underage girl. It's like, it's implied like she's a groupie who's going to the shows, but also she um, is famous for having slept with her own granddad or, or father or whoever it was, who's this musician. And it's sort of implied throughout the book that like, well, maybe she was into it. Maybe she liked it. And I wasn't paying close enough attention to know if that was like people saying that. It seemed from my reading that it was the other way. Like people were saying, hey, like, don't you feel weird about this? And then she was sort of responding and going, oh, no, why do you presume I wasn't into it? Like free love and all that. And and again, maybe I'm not following that thread properly. Um, But either way, it felt unnecessary. It felt gratuitous. It wasn't, again, not relevant at all to the plot. Like, this is just a, a side story. And I felt like that element was put in there. Like, this, weirdly enough, this sort of thing is sort of a trope of, of realist fiction. Um, underage girls sleeping with men in power. And then the men or the, the women saying that they were into it. It happens a lot. Usually in books um, written by uh, older men in senior academic positions who like to write books about how their students want to sleep with them. Um, whereas this, this is, you know, presumably from a, uh, progressive female author. So maybe there was some implied critique in there, but it all just felt very, um, gratuitous and unjustified and, uh, the writing was terrible. So yeah, do not recommend that one. A book I also do not recommend Uh, The first vampire book, because you remember I've I've read lots of those in the last 12 months. Um, The first vampire book on this list is Christopher Moore's Bloodsucking Fiends from 1995. Uh, Christopher Moore is a British uh, writer, I'm told. He's he's a humorous writer, though uh, this being my one experience with him, I would debate that. But kind of interesting, because 1995 British humor, you know, this is... Uh, kind of comparable or in the same wheelhouse as Pratchett is writing in at the, at the peak of his, you know, commercial um, prominence and influence. Um, and yeah, apparently Christopher Moore is a, a fairly well-known name. I, I had not heard of him. This book just came up on a list of uh, vampire books somewhere and I checked it out. And yeah, pretty shocking. Um, I don't have to list in front of me to say where it ranks in my list of about 60 vampire novels that I've read or whatever, but I think it's in the bottom five. Um, it is above Twilight, but only just. I don't remember too much about this. I think it's a, there's a vampire murder mystery, which is definitely an oversaturated trend, um, especially in 90s vampire books. Uh, but I don't remember too much about it other than I think it was incredibly sexist. <laughs> That's the only thing I remember about this. Sort of like all the uh, comedy 
seemed to be in the form of like, yeah, sexist 90s sort of um, really, really stereotypical jokes um, that not only felt like of a time, just even the construction of them and things like weren't funny. It was just there was a character who said sexist things and was meant to be sort of sympathetic and jovial, but just, yeah, there wasn't, there was no twist. There was no punch to any of it. It was just really unpleasant and a really boring, unoriginal story with unlikable characters. And that is why it is the sixth worth book I've read this year. Uh, continuing on, we have a, another vampire book at number five. We have going all the way back to 1885. Um, a book called The Vampire or Detective Brand's Greatest Case, uh, which is has been attributed to Hawley Smart. I think on the, the original 1885 uh, serialization, it's credited to as by the author of another book, which is like a pretty common thing to do back then. Um, I think Mary Shelley's Last Man was as by the author of Frankenstein, for example, although that's almost what, 60 years before this book. Um, uh, but yeah, I think the the actual version of this book that you can buy that has just been reprinted for the first time and the first time ever as a coherent novel rather than in, in serialization. Uh, this year in 2022, you will find this book as edited by uh, Gary D. Rhodes and John Edgar Browning, uh, who absolutely sucked me in with this one. Because, uh, yeah, these are some scholars of vegetarian, uh, not vegetarian, sorry, vampire fiction. Um, and I came across this book in, in some of the vampire uh, scholarship I was reading. They talked about, hey, there's this new book, Vamp- The Vampire, that's been first published this year and it predates Dracula by 10 years. And it was the most popular vampire novel in uh, the US before... Um, before Dracula was was translated, or not translated, but published in, in America and things. Um, no, so it seemed pretty pretty interesting, fairly historical significant. And I, and I was extremely suspicious because the first thing I checked was the authors of this article uh, were indeed the editors who had published this book. So they're doing a bit of a, a sneaky self-promotion there, but nevertheless, sounded interesting. Uh, so I ordered a copy and I read it. And I said this was the second vampire story on this list, but no, it isn't. This is not a vampire story. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to spoil this book, but I assume no one uh, out there listening to this is going to want to read this. Uh, you know, I was reading it for my ridiculous interest in vampire stuff. And even if you are interested in that, I would not recommend wasting your time on this. Because, yeah, this isn't this isn't a vampire book. Um, this is a murder mystery book about a, a serial killer who, you know, is masquerading as a vampire making their kills look like a vampire uh but at the end it's like no i'm just a dude um but you know that, that's not bad in and of itself there's been some versions of that like i think um the what's his name the not a living dead guy i want to say george martin um but that's not it that's that's game of thrones uh george romero has one of his early films martin that's why i wanted to say george martin the film is called martin by george r romero um is there an R in there? Who knows? Dawn of the Dead Guys film, Martin, where that one is left more ambiguous, though it does just seem to be like there's this, you know, um, sociopathic killer um, in that story. 
who acts like a vampire, but is he really? And like, probably not. Um, whereas this one, it's just flat out said, oh, no, I'm not a vampire. And also this is after 200 pages of people being like, oh, we've got the vapors and fainting and things. Um, horrible book. Don't know what I was expecting from an 1885 serial, but I, I read Varney the Vampire, the first part of that, and was, was pretty entertained by it and had some interesting ideas. This one, this one does not. Um, it's also weirdly the, the new version is an illustrated version. There's some illustrations by a dude named Jeremy Ray in there. Um, you know, there's only like a handful of them through the entire book. It's not like it's an illustrated version of the story. There's just every, you know, 20 or 30 pages, there's a random illustration. Uh, very sort of modern comic book looking uh, illustrations, though. I, I don't know why they decided to include them. They don't add anything. They're really out of place. I don't think they're particularly good. I mean, my, my assumption is that Jeremy Ray is a friend of the editors and they were like, oh, you know, we can get you some work to add a credit on this book. I, I did look him up and he's illustrated some other books and I think game manuals and stuff, but he doesn't seem to be like a notable guy in comics or what. I don't know. I don't know what the illustrations are doing there. Uh, they're not the reason I didn't like this book. They just seem superfluous on top of an entire book that seems superfluous. Um... I said the Pride and Prejudice doesn't really connect, but is perhaps interesting from a historical perspective. Um, this one, the, the book itself is perhaps interesting from a historical perspective, but what's going on in the narrative uh, certainly isn't. Um, moving on into number four, we have John Christopher's When the Tripods Came from 1967. 1988, actually. This is a prequel novel written to John Christopher's Tripods Trilogy, which again, this is one of the ones I talked to in one of the bonus episodes, but I'm pretty sure I didn't actually publish this one. But if I did, uh, John Christopher's When the Tripods Came is a shameless ripoff of H.G. Uh, Wells's War of the Worlds, uh, written for children in the, the 60s. Um, they're not very good. <laughs> There's three of them. They're, they're all pretty bad, even as 60s children's novels go. Apparently they were pretty popular, but I think that they're pretty, pretty dull, pretty awful. Um, and then this is a prequel novel written, I think it's like 10 years or something after the fact. And I think I remember last time I thought the year was wrong. I looked it up. I was shocked by how early these books were, but I think this one was later because this one was written in response to like criticisms of the story. There was like, well, why, how did this takeover happened and it doesn't make any sense. And then he was like, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. So I went back 10 years after the fact or however long it was. And I wrote this prequel book to explain the alien invasion. And they, they do it by brainwashing people through TV or something. And it's just along with being like, I think a really banal and silly solution. It's far less interesting than I think he, the author is giving himself credit for. Um, just completely unnecessary. I, I do not think we needed this book at all and I do not think I need to have read it. All right, we are getting into the real trash now. And number three, we have a, a semi-tie between the book Zoo by James Patterson and Michael Legwig from 2012, uh, which this being James Patterson, of course, means it was written by Michael Legwig and then he puts his name on it to get it to sell a billion copies or whatever. Um, but more more specifically, this is going to uh, Zoo 2 
which is a supposed and alleged collaboration between uh, Patterson and another author named Max DeLello uh, from 2016. So James Patterson is like, and he's like one of, if not the like biggest selling author of all time. Um, you know, he writes all the airport thrillers and things that you see shelves of at op shops. Um, does he have one? I was going to say Hunt for Red October, but that's that's Clancy, Tom Clancy. The thing with James Patterson is like, I don't know if there's an actual book of his that like has any, any prominence, but maybe I'm wrong. But I think looking over his like massive bibliography, there wasn't anything there that jumped out. Maybe there was he the Pelican Brief guy. I don't know. Um, again, this is the, the type of thing that if I wasn't in the bath, I'd be looking up and dragging out this recording even longer, but I'm not, I'm here, I'm sitting in the bath and I got the list in front of me and we're talking about Zoo and Zoo 2. So, Zoo... Uh, was recommended to me uh, by someone when I when I gave an academic paper about um, animal empowerment in viral science fiction stories, pandemic science fiction stories, because this is this is a book about a what they suspect for most of the book to be a um, viral infection that causes non-human animals to start attacking humans and and they take over um, the cities and things. So and it's I have not read a Patterson book before, um, but I went in thinking, you know, how, how bad can this be? Especially after I've been on my big Stephen King kick and, and everything. I was like, okay, you know, I'm going into this with an open mind. And look, Zoo was pretty bad. I'm not going to say Zoo is a good book, but as far as like trashy techno thrillers about animals attacking people, like it was decent enough. It was fine. It, it was sort of about what I expected, even on the, the upper uh, the, the ending is ridiculous, um, but that's sort of not the point. It was it was like it was a fun enough read, and, and this would not be on this list um, itself were it not for Zoo Two, which perhaps you can infer from its utterly uninspired title. Um, this book is abysmal, and it has a kind of interesting premise, which is that if the first book was about this this infection. Which is not a virus, it's a it's a pheromone thing caused by mobile phones and, and petrol emissions and stuff. So it becomes this ridiculous cli-fi thing at the end. But um this this pheromone thing that then infects animals and turns them against people. And Zoo 2 has, has a pretty logical conclusion of that. If what if, what if this pheromone thing started affecting humans, right? And it's it's basically a zombie story. There are infected humans and the humans start attacking people and it basically becomes a zombie thing. Um, so again, nothing, nothing too sort of like abominable there, except for, I think this book contains the actual worst passage I have ever read in any book ever. And I read this to a bunch of people, anyone who will listen and even some who don't, I tell them, okay, I've read this book and it's got this thing in it. Let me read it to you. Cause I think it's that bad. And I, <laughs> I want to show everyone like, Whenever you think you've read a bad book, you, you have not read something as bad as this because this comes in chapter 35, which I'm pretty sure is like the second last chapter of the book. And here, I'm going to do a bit of setup for this. So there's the main character who is this like amazing scientist. He's from the first book. He's the, this incredible scientist who, you know, had predicted, had noticed that there was this animal rebellion going on and no one took him seriously until it was too late. And then he's, you know, 
running around trying to fix it. That's carried over from the first book. Pretty, pretty stock standard sort of stuff. Um, and so there is him and there are two other women. Um, oh, fuck. It might have, it might have been in the first book, actually. I can't remember where the, the wife character comes in, but there is a character. I think it might even be one of his students that he's sleeping with, to throw back to that conversation earlier, where she's literally like this buxom redhead who comes in and, and tells him to shut up and stop talking because she's done playing video games and just wants to have hot sex with him. And and then she dumps him for... She leaves him and, and he checks up with this very young, um, small deferent uh french girl um so there's all kinds of stuff there going on there but that is to say that i think there's two other women he meets in this book who again just idolize and fall in love with him i can't remember who all the characters are but one of them gets infected with the the pheromone thing so she's becoming a zombie and she's helping like develop a cure and fight it and everything but you know it's a race against the clock is the infection going to set in so this is after they've, they've sort of solved all of that but, but she is infected. And so whoever Sarah is, Sarah says, fine, we've worked out how to, how to deal with this. But the more quick, but the more pressing question is, how do we stop it and reverse it in the people already affected? How in the world do we regrow human brains? Because the, the pheromones are causing brain damage, right? Okay. And then, then we have the following passage. Easy, I reply. Stem cells. They're like cellular-free spaces with the potential to grow into any kind of cells in the human body, including brain tissue. As long as we program them right, toss in a high-octane antihistamine to block pheromone absorption, and we'll be back in business, with an exclamation mark. Chloe and Sarah consider my suggestion, both clearly intrigued by it. We all know stem cell therapy is a new field, I continue. The idea I'm proposing is radical. It's hard, but... You're wrong, Oz, Sarah replies. It's simple. It's elegant. It's genius. So they're just going to fix their brain with stem cells, you guys. Stem cells, which also have not been mentioned previously at any point in the previous 34 chapters of this book. Right? They, they'd almost get away with this if at the start he was working on, on a new stem cell technology to do something else. And at the end, he's like, oh, that's right. We have this. And we can do it there. Like it would, it would still be ridiculous, but in, in terms of just the idea of stem cells regrowing brains, but in terms of the narrative logic, you'd be like, all right, you foreshadowed that, you set it up. Nope. This is just dropped in at the end to solve the, um, the brain damage caused to one of the, the main characters. And then the other two admiring women telling me it's, it's genius. Um, so yes, that I think is the worst paragraph, the worst passage of anything I've ever read ever. It is not, however, in the worst book I have ever read, or even read this year, because that was only number three. At number two, we have another uh, vampire book, the last the last vampire book in this list. Uh, this is The Travelling Vampire Show uh, from 2000 uh, by Richard Lehman, um, who is a, a horror author, apparently a fairly well-known horror author, who specializes in like really pulpy, um, like splatterhouse gore filled, uh, books is, is my interpretation of him. Um, or my understanding. Um, so yeah, not really expecting like top shelf literature from this. 
Um, and, and I did read another one of his books because I've started reading a bunch of uh, mummy books in preparation for when I'm going to uh, cover pyramids soon. So I read another one of his that was, was posthumously um, published. I think what was it called? To Wake the Dead. I think it has another name if it's published in the UK, which is the name of the mummy, which I can't remember. It's like a, a, a Nero or something, whatever the name of the, the mummy is. And that one I actually ended up really enjoying. Uh, that has some pretty horrendous gore stuff in it. And there, there was one line in particular at the end, one decision that's made where I'm like, you've just ruined this um, by, by, you know, going for the weird, um, shocking gross out at the end. Um, whereas, whereas I did genuinely enjoy most of the rest of the book, um, for what it was, right? For being this trashy, hyper-violent, hyper-gory mummy story. Um, but this book, uh, The Traveling Vampire Show from, from 2000, if I didn't say that, which won the, the Bram Stoker Award for the, uh, best horror book of the year, which I think this might've been the year he died. So it might've been, you know, awarded as a, a lifetime achievement thing, um, after the fact, but the Trolling Vampire Show, this is, this is the worst vampire book I've ever read. This is the one book on my list I have ranked below Twilight because it's, it's absolutely shocking. It does all this horrific gore stuff. Um, but the entire perspective is told from like a, um, like what do you call it? Like an MRA, an M a men's rights, rights actor. No, an, an incel, right? It's the involuntary celibate incel, MRA perspective before that was a thing. Um, so presented entirely unironically here. Um, and, and it's about how this guy, you know, manipulates women into sleeping with him and things. And it's very superficial and horrible. Um, and, and he's not the vampire. He is like the teenage hero who is opposing the vampires. So it turns out the, you know, women he's manipulating are these horrible sex vampires and things. Um, this book ends with a cage match between, like like a cage fight, between the, the teenage uh, male protagonist and his girlfriend, I think, and a bunch of lesbian vampires who I think rape him in the middle of the, the cage and end up having their nipples ripped off. It's just like, it's like it's been written by a, I don't even want to say a 16 year old, like a 13 year old or a 14 year old. Um, just repulsive on a, you know, a gore level, which I guess, you know, he'd say, well, yeah, that's what I was going for. But on just a general, like, oh, you, this is what you, you did and you thought this was cool and, and entertaining. I and mean, they gave this book a reward, an, an award, um, whether he was dying or not. Um, yeah, this book is utter trash. And I think there'd be some people who, uh, who would say the same thing in the, the, the mummy book. Uh, there's definitely a part of it that is ridiculous. Um, that veers on this, or doesn't even veer, it goes pretty, pretty all the way in, um, to this, this level of, um, you know, uh, pulp, but, and, and schlock. But yeah, the, the traveling vampire show is, is absolute utter trash. And here we go. Coming up on an hour of recording of this nice relaxing podcast I was going to do. So I'm going to, Probably stop and get out of the bath and take a break and come back for uh, the the um, top 10. But rounding out the bottom 10, the worst books I've read uh, for the first time this year. We, we have a bit of a 
a three-way um, <laughs> nomination entry here. But, but they're all one. This is the uh, Gwendy series of, of novellas and novelettes, um, which are collaborations between Stephen King and, and some guy named Richard Chismar, uh, who I think edits horror um, magazines and things, but I don't know if he's, you know, written much himself. Um, and there's been a lot of accusations in the response to these books that this is just him, like, attaching his name to King to try and get some notoriety. I don't want to go that far. Um, except that I, I haven't done my big Stephen King countdown. I don't know. Like, do people want that? I was going to do it just for me to get it out of my system. And I, I did record, um, half of it, the, the bottom half, uh, coincidentally, and it just, it went on for too long and I don't have time to edit it. And I never got around to recording the top part. And then the, the moment sort of passed. Uh, if people would find that interesting or just want to know my list or whatever, you know, email me at Unseen Academicals Pod and, you know, that might actually motivate me to do it. But I, I don't know if I'm going to do the Stephen King ranking podcast that I've been I've been promising. But, um, yeah, this this was bottom of the pile. And then there's three of them. The first one, uh, Gwendy's Button, Button Box, which came out in 2017. Apparently, this is a, a short story King wrote and then, you know, got Chismar to finish because he didn't really know what to do. This one's not terrible. Um, it's not very good. But it's got it's got some interesting sort of setup and premise about it, um, which is about, like, this little girl, for whatever reason, is entrusted with, with a button box, um, which is a box where it has buttons in it, not like I was imagining, like, shirt buttons. But this is like buttons that you push, like computer buttons or something that if she pushes them, people in the world will die, but she'll get a wish or something. It's sort of like a trolley problem uh, deal. Uh, for whatever reason, she is entrusted with this box by a mysterious figure from another world. Um, but it, it's written decently enough. There's enough intrigue going on at the start of the book. And then I think the ending, which presumably is the part Chismo came in and did, just sort of it just sort of ends and the ending is uninspiring and un- undeserved. Um and a bit schlocky, but the, the first one wasn't terrible. What is terrible? And what I think is like the actual number one worst uh, book I've read this year is the the second book, um, which is just Chismar going solo. So no Stephen King attached to this one, which is called Gwendy's Magic Feather from 2019. Um, and this is like a, a serial killer mystery where Gwendy, there's no button box. Like she gave it back to the dude at the end of the first book. Gwendy is now, like, grown up or she's a teenager and she's solving mysteries with the power of, like, a feather that's a trinket from her childhood or something. But she, she has, like, psychic visions or something. I don't know. Except that this entire book is, like, it's a serial killer mystery that doesn't get solved. Which isn't to say that there's no reveal at the end that we don't find out who the killer is. We find out who the killer is. But the characters don't solve it. I, I can't remember the exact details, but, like, Gwendy has a dream or something or just has a vision of who the killer is like two pages towards the end of the book. And it's like, oh, and actually it was this guy, the end. So it, it's like the first one, I don't think it was great. It had this, this weird imagery. It was like a seemingly sort of original, strange idea that was being explored. This is a like, I was going to say meat and potatoes, but I'm better than that. I'm a, a vegetarian um, a critical theorist. So I will say I was, it was very stock. That is, there's vegetable stock, not beef stock. Um, but yeah, just just incredibly poorly written book that just seems like 
kind of like it was rushed out without King's involvement to sort of capitalize on the momentum of that that first um, one. And then this is followed up by uh, a third entry with, with King back on board, King Karang, uh, called um, Gwendy's Final Task from 2022, this year. Um, and it's pretty short. And it's, it's, it's pretty bad as well. Um, I don't know. It's probably the best of the three or maybe the first one. I don't know. It's, it's ridiculous. Like this is, it's a science fiction story set in the future where Gwendy is now like the president of earth or an advisor to the president of earth who goes into space and it's like an allegory for Donald Trump or something. And there's all these ridiculous things and she did her husband's having an affair or something. I don't know. I can't remember it. It was pretty bad. Um, but it is kind of interesting, like Stephen King going to fantasy space, like he hasn't gone to space before um, in, in all of the uh, 50 or so books of his that I've read. So, you know, I was like, okay, this is something different. Again, I, I don't know if it's a successful book, but they were taking a swing at something. They were trying, and I'd say failed spectacularly. Whereas, yeah, Gwendy's Magic Feather, um, Chismar's not even trying with this one. And then he gets to the end and goes, oh, yeah, the killer was that guy. I've had enough. Let's put it out as, you know, the sequel to the Stephen King thing and, and people will buy it. And um, just a, a horrible, worthless uh, story. So, I, I, you know, I'm trying not to get into my uh, angry YouTuber mode. <laughs> but uh, I think these last couple of books have really brought out the uh, disdain and, and um, well, quite frankly, disgusted me <laughs> for some of the quality of... Um, at least these these last uh, few books. So um, hopefully that was somewhat entertaining for anyone who's listening. And yeah, I'm going to take a, a second to get out of the bath, um, relax my throat a bit, and then I'm going to, uh, yeah, probably record the, the top 10 books I read this year. So if, if you weren't into that um, bile spitting that I just went through there, um, We'll actually have a lot of nice things and genuine uh, recommendations to make uh, in that episode, that second part, uh, which that will only be released on the, the Patreon feed, uh, which, yeah, you can unlock again by following the links in the podcast description or going to patreon.com slash Dr. Prometheus. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you have a happy new year. Oh, uh-oh, and that's what we've been reading.